0: Today we travel back September 1997. Police in Franklin, Indiana, are doing a routine patrol when they find a car abandoned on the side of the road. But abandoned may not be the right word, as the lights are left on, the keys are in the ignition, and a purse is found on the front seat. In today's episode, we explore the sad murder. Of Kelly Eckhart. Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Welcome, welcome, welcome in, kids, for another turn on your favorite amusement park ride, the Killing, Missing, Hidden podcast. So happy that you're here to join us. As always, I'm your buddy Brad, the carny that controls this ride, and I'm surprisingly sober today, so it should be a good one. Now, I'm going to confess right off the bat this last week has sucked. Have you ever had one of those weeks at work where you just come home every day and you want to go to bed because you've just busted your behind so hard that even eating dinner seems like a chore? Yeah, well. I'm coming off of one of those. So, I actually began this weekend with no script, no idea what episode we were going to cover, and I would rely on an old friend, good old Forensic Files, to give me something to go with this week. So, we're going to explore a more traditional killing, nothing with a bunch of mysteries attached, it's one that's been solved. Pretty classic, pretty simple, but we've put in a lot of time into some weird ones recently, so maybe mentally this is a good break for both of us, and it's probably the only way you're getting an episode out of me this week. That's how bad it's been. I know we don't like to ramble up front, but I'm going to ask, as always, please join our Facebook group, follow us on Instagram at kmh.podcast. We're on Twitter at kmh podcast, And if you haven't subscribed or left a review or any of that good stuff, well, by golly, we sure would appreciate that. So that being said, we're going to jump into this episode. Oh, special bonus, too. First time I'm performing without a script. It's almost like we're doing this live. It's pretty nerve-wracking, huh? You should start taking bets on how badly I'm going to fail. And and I would bet aggressively if I were you. But uh, enough of that. Let's, Let's just jump in. So like we discussed in the intro, this takes place in Franklin, Indiana. It's on the evening of September 26th, morning of September 27th, somewhere in there, around midnight. Of 1997, a police officer on patrol comes across a car that's on the side of the road that looks abandoned. But when he pulls up to it, it's not really all that abandoned because the lights are still on, the door is slightly ajar, the keys to the car in the ignition, and there's a purse sitting on the passenger seat. Naturally, if you're going to abandon your vehicle, normally you would take the keys with you, take your purse with you, do a few things differently. So, police officer instantly smells trouble, as he should, and radios in for help. Forensic team comes out, inspects the vehicle, and doesn't really find a whole heck of a lot. They identify the vehicle as uh, belonging to Kelly Eckhart. She's an 18-year-old who's in college at Franklin College there in Indiana. She had graduated from high school the year before, or I guess months before. Uh, She was a member of the National Honor Society, just a really good student, naturally, you know, lots of friends, as all teenage girls seem to have, and was really enjoying her time as a freshman in college. Now, she had worked part-time at the Walmart down the road to help make ends meet as college students are often forced to do, right? So she got off her shift at Walmart around 10 o'clock and she apparently met her then boyfriend and his mother there at the Walmart to go shopping. I guess they were gonna take advantage of her employee discount. They tool around the store for a while and check out at 11.15. The reports are they separate. Obviously, boyfriend has his car. Kelly has her car. And they drive off, and they never see each other again. Now, of course, the police key in on the boyfriend because A, who's most likely to kill someone, and B, he was the last person to see her alive. Now, at this point in the story, even though I've already kind of given away the spoiler that she's dead, she is just missing. But they police come down pretty hard on the boyfriend and lean on him. Tell us what you know. You got to know something. It's OK. We can work out a deal. All the typical little tricks police use to try to get a confession of someone. And the boyfriend says, look, I don't I don't know what happened to her you know i left with my mom you can ask her last time i saw her was around eleven fifteen, and he was able to produce a gas station receipt from about midnight that would have put him in the opposite direction of where her car was found now police were apparently frustrated that this convenience store slash gas station didn't have any security cameras The attendant working that night didn't really remember seeing him, but he had the receipt. I could prove, you know, I had the transaction on record. There was no doubt that he was at that gas station around midnight. So police, you know, decide, meanwhile, we got to find this body so we can figure out what's going on. You know, where is Kelly? So they do a search, and about five days later, even though the police have done this massive search all around the area where the car was, two women who are walking their dogs find Kelly's body in what's described as a camp or some sort of uh, like nature reserve that's about 40 miles away from where her car was. Of course, they call the police. Everybody rushes over. They realize pretty quickly it's Kelly. And the condition of her body is a little unusual. I mean, there's lots of evidence that can be found there. She is partially undressed, and it's clear she's died from strangulation. She has a gold chain around her neck. She has a shoelace around her neck. And she just happened to be wearing bib overalls that day. And whoever assaulted her had cut off one of the arms of the overalls? What's the proper term for that? One of the little buckle belt parts? I don't know. I'm from the south. You'd think I should know a proper term. But regardless, that too is around her neck. And she had bruising indicating that she had been strangled and whatnot. On her clothes. Uh, forensic experts were able to find two different types of fibers, one of which was rather unique. It was kind of a green carpet fiber, consistent with what you would find in the back of a trunk, or maybe uh, you know in a van, some sort of some sort of motor vehicle. The other fibers were white and were consistent with something you'd find from a quilt or a comforter or something like that. They noticed, sadly, that um, before she was strangled to death, Kelly had been sexually abused. But what was most unusual about the body was the fact that she had a gunshot wound to the head. While that in and of itself isn't that unusual for a true crime podcast, right? It, It was what she was shot with. She wasn't really shot with a traditional bullet. She wasn't shot with a BB. She wasn't shot with like some sort of dart. She was shot with a wax bullet. If you've ever heard of such a thing. Now, when the forensic folks first looked at this and analyzed this, they thought it was remarkably similar to the covering put on the prongs of cattle prods that are used at slaughterhouses. So that was kind of one of the first directions some detectives went on. Now, were there any slaughterhouses nearby, anybody that would have one of these cattle prods, and maybe they had used that to, you know, shock her, to knock her out, and it had left the covering behind in her head. Being shocked in the head by one of those, I think, would be just awful. Now, Other detectives back at the car. One thing that the forensic investigators found there was that she her vehicle had suffered damage to the bumper. And they opined that it was fairly recent damage. So they were police and detectives were thinking, well, maybe what happened is somebody followed her from Walmart initiated an accident, you know, just bumped into her car, forced her to pull over, and then while they're inspecting the damage, they hit her with this cattle prod. Going back to those who found her body in the woods, the forensics experts called in a forensic etymologist who studies bugs, and found that there were some larvae on her body. Yay, isn't that gross? So, she had, from the the larvae, they were able to deduce that it was very, very likely that Kelly had not survived the night when she was kidnapped. See, they had found what's called blue fly larvae, on our body and these are flies that are usually the first to kind of settle down on a dead carcass of some sort and they use it as a place to lay their eggs so their larvae and developing babies have some food to eat so the good thing about these bugs at least from a forensic standpoint is they're very consistent in their rate of growth and based off of that the the forensic etymologist was quite confident in saying that Kelly had been dead, you know, for several days and he could pinpoint it to roughly just after midnight when she was kidnapped, or I guess that'd be September twenty-seventh. Twenty-seventh, right? Yeah. See? I'm horrible without notes. I don't know why I'm doing this to y'all. So after finding Kelly's body, they, police notice that, like I said, she's got this shoelace around her neck, but she's not wearing any shoes. So they immediately want to know, is the shoelace hers or is it from the killer's? So not knowing a better way to handle it, they hold a press conference and with Kelly's mom's help, find the exact pair of shoes that she was wearing that night. And they're pretty simple shoes. They, You know, probably one... They've got thick soles, so it's good for retail. All white, canvas. Nothing special about them. Probably very popular. But it's kind of a Hail Mary by police. Well, gosh darn it, wouldn't you know it? The Hail Mary works out. Somebody calls the police several days later to report that they found shoes similar to what had been displayed on the TV at the Atterbury Wildlife Preserve, aka Camp Atterbury, which is where wow. Kelly's body was found. And the shoes weren't just casually tossed aside in a ditch or anything like that. They were stuck in a toilet. So the killer made the special effort to go find the women's restroom and shove these shoes in the toilet water rather than disposing of them in a meaningful way. So police, you know, fish them out of the porcelain throne and analyze them and find out they were Achilles. And sure enough, one of them was missing a shoestring. So they were, you know, the shoestring around her neck matched the shoestring on the other shoe. So they felt Fairly confident that that was part of the ligature that was constructed to strangle Kelly to death, please search all through this park and it's not you know some little playground type area. It's a nature reserve, so it's thirty three thousand acres and despite their efforts, Of course they're not going to find anything. That's too big an area to search. Except they did find something. Something totally random. Totally surprising. Totally shocking. They found another body. A woman by the name of Sharon Myers, who was 26 years old, was found strangled to death, much like Kelly and had her remains dumped down one of the ravines in this nature reserve. So, of course, now police are looking at this and saying, oh my God, we've got a serial killer. We've got a budding serial killer. What are we going to do? We've got to put an end to this. It just so happens, though, that... Shannon's or Sharon's case was pretty easy to sort out because she had been in this like nonstop run and gun fight with one of her co workers. And eventually it had just come to a head, and they went after each other during work, and her coworker told friends. I think, I believe his name was Jason Hubble, that this wasn't over. And then she ends up dead a few days later when police interview him. He doesn't really deny anything. And so he ends up being arrested for Sharon's murder. Now, of course, they look at him as their next prime suspect. The boyfriend didn't work out. Now we've got this confessed killer who's been in the area and has committed murder in the same way that Kelly suffered. Let's check him out. They interviewed him and all that, but really what they wanted was some DNA so they could test it against the DNA that was found on Kelly's undergarments and inside of her from the assault. And when they tested it, it didn't match. He was not the person to commit the assault on Kelly. So police kind of moved away from this guy being involved. Just FYI, Hubble was convicted and I believe is serving something close to a life sentence. So, again, being out of options, police set up a tip line and say, look, if you know anything, if you think you know anything about Kelly's disappearance, please call this number. We'll investigate it. Well, within a few weeks, they get over 800 tips. And like good detectives and good police, they follow up on every single one of them, no matter how bizarre they sound. And one of the tips they got was actually from multiple people claiming that they shop at the Walmart that Kelly worked at. And they would often see this truck with a camper covering the bed that would just sit in the parking lot. And there was a single male inside, and he would get out and would roam around, and just the whole situation seemed odd, fishy, not right. And in fact, at least one person reported seeing him kind of peering into cars and taking a particular interest in a maroon sedan. And it just turns out that Kelly was driving a maroon sedan the night she was kidnapped and murdered. So, of course, police want to know who this dude is, what he's up to, all that mess. So they set up a little stakeout there. And sure enough, within a few nights, they catch this guy in a pickup truck with a covered bed who just comes up there and parks and is just people watching, I guess you'd say. And then he gets out of the car and walks around and he talks to a couple folks and then gets back in his car and police say, okay, we got to talk to this guy. So they pick him up and this guy is like an open book. He's got nothing to hide, but he says, look, I know Kelly because I've been inside the Walmart. I had nothing to do with her disappearance. And when they ask, well, you got to tell us what you're doing in this parking lot?" because this just ain't normal behavior. He says, "Look, I, you know, I've had a rough go of it. I lost my job. I lost my wife. I'm lonely, and I'm just there looking for a good woman. Oh, so, you know, we don't, we don't use Match.com. We don't." use Tinder, or just going to troll for booty in the Walmart parking lot. Okay. To each his own. But again, they investigate. He, you know, willingly gives his DNA. Like I said, he cooperates to the whole thing. There's no evidence tying him to Kelly's car. And so, even though he's kind of a weirdo and a little bit creepy, police have to let him go, right? Because they got no evidence on this dude. So again, we've got this poor girl who her car is found with all her personal belonging inside. Her body's found 40 miles away in pretty rough condition. She apparently did not survive the night after being murdered. She was probably pulled out of her car after the perpetrator instigated a minor motor vehicle accident. She gets shot in the head with a wax bullet or casing of some sort and then is raped and strangled to death. And there's just no leads coming up. But again, that tip line has produced 800 leads. They followed them all and just none of them. The the Walmart guy has been our best lead so far. So cops are getting frustrated. But they keep the tip line going. They keep doing their police work. And after a few weeks, they get another random tip. It's anonymous. This caller calls in and says, look, you know, I don't want to be associated with this. I'm not going to give my name. But there's a fellow by the name of Scott Overstreet. And the way he's been talking, I think he knows something about Kelly's death. So y'all need to go check him out. So the police, you know, find this fella. He works at a local factory, and, you know, they talk to him. Again, he's pretty cooperative. He's married. He's got kids. um, Seems like a fairly normal dude for the area. And, you know, initially he said, I I don't really know much, blah, blah, blah. Then they get him downtown. He was like, okay, well, I know a little bit more than maybe I was letting on. And he tells a story about how on the evening of September 26th, he's at home when he gets a call from his brother, Michael Overstreet. And his brother says, look, I am hammered. I've tried to drive home. I can't make it. Will you please come pick me up? Being responsible, right? Kudos for him. How can this be a bad guy? So he had pulled over at a nearby motel. Brother Scott goes and picks him up and gets there and sees he's got a lady friend in the back. Like, yeah, that's a girl I met. She's passed out. Um, Will you just drive me home, please? So, you know, Scott leaves his vehicle, takes Michael's van and starts driving him home. And after about five or 10 minutes of driving, Michael says, you know what, don't. Don't take me home. See, Michael's married too, so taking this his paramour home probably wasn't a smart idea. And Scott says, Well, we were just at a hotel. What do you you know, wh- where do you want to go? And he said, I got some stuff back there. Why don't why don't you take us over to that nature reserve and we'll just go, we'll camp. We'll sleep under the stars. It'll be romantic, right? So he says, Okay, fine. And they, he goes towards the nature reserve and when he's pulling in, you know, they've got different areas for activities. You know, they've got a pond you can fish and they've got a shooting range and they've got, you know, hiking trails and all these stuff. And they all have little areas where you stop to do that. Well, Michael insists on stopping in an area that has no attractions around them. And he says, you know, I don't want to be bothered. Let's pull over here and we'll sleep here. And Scott admits that he thought that was really odd for his brother to make that request. And then he said, I just got a really bad feeling in my stomach when the girl apparently was so drunk she couldn't walk. And my brother had to carry him. And sure enough, he carried her wrapped in a white blanket. So they go off and Scott says, I didn't know what was going on, but I didn't want to be a part of it. And so Michael comes back to the car before he leaves and goes, will you come pick us up in the morning? And he says, no, absolutely not. (laughs) He said, you want to ride? You call your wife. I'm done with this. And he's cool with that. Michael's like, all right, yeah, call my wife. You know, maybe the three of us will, will go to Waffle House or whatever they have in the area. Have a nice little breakfast, you know, bond a little, you know. Here's my wife, here's my girlfriend. Anyway, so um, Scott does just that. He drives the van back to Michael's house, wakes up his wife, tells her what's going on. She gives Scott a ride back to where he left his car at the motel. And then she decides at 3.30 in the morning, she's going to go pick that worthless SOB husband of hers up and figure out what's going on here. When she gets, when she's looking for him, she finds him sweating and kind of half undressed. He's got his pants on. He's got his shirt on, but it's a button-up shirt, and it's not buttoned. So I'm—he's just showing his glorious beer gut to the world. It's three thirty in the morning, and the only thing he's got with him besides his clothes is his hunting rifle and a white blanket. And of course, she just starts laying into him, as she should. What are you doing out here at this time of night? And oh, I was—you know. I was just out drinking with some buddies. Like, what do you mean you were out drinking with some buddies? You're in the middle of nowhere. And he, he basically says, look, I was out drinking with some buddies, and if anybody asks, that's what you better tell them. So, good guy, right? We really like him. Now, that's not the only thing that Michael's wife has to tell the police. She has a name, too, and I keep skipping over it, and I apologize. Melissa. Melissa is her name. So Melissa tells the police that not only did she go pick him up, not only did he have this cockamamie story, but a couple days later, he just goes out on a little road trip and won't tell her where he's going. And he comes back and uh, he walks in the door and sits down and then immediately gets back up and says, I'm going to go wash the van. Which is very surprising to her because apparently this van was just a pile of rust with wheels. She said he'd never cleaned it. It was filthy. He used it for work. He was in construction. And she didn't see why he all of a sudden, after all these years, aside they wanted to clean it. But she didn't stand in his way. And he goes off and cleans it. And when he comes back, she notices something odd. He's cleaned it all right, but only the back half of the vehicle. She said the front half's just as filthy as it's ever been, but the back half, it's been gone through with a fine-tooth comb. I mean, it's been spit-shined. It's beautiful looking. Well, beautiful for a pile of rust, you know. Police decide to kind of inspect the van and... They did. It was a warrantless search, so they couldn't go inside the van, but one thing they could do was measure the bumper height. And they realized that the height of the bumper on the van was the absolute perfect height to cause the damage to Kelly's rear bumper. Imagine that. So, they kind of go all in on Michael being involved in Kelly's Kidnapping and murder. Bring him in for questioning and he denies everything. He doesn't have an excuse. He doesn't have an alibi. He can't explain anything. He just keeps repeating, I didn't have nothing to do with that girl. I didn't have nothing to do with that girl. When they inspected his vehicle on the inside, the forensic folks were happy to find that the color of his carpet was the same color of the fibers found on Kelly's clothing. And when they inspected them, sure enough, they were identical. They also found a comforter that had been put in storage inside the house that had clearly been outside and never washed. They tested those fibers, and guess what? Another match for what was on Kelly's clothing. It's just not coming up aces for old Michael here, is it? Now, Michael, just to go a little bit into his backstory, he's married, he's got four kids, he's a decent provider, but he has a history of mental illness. He was in the Navy for less than a month before they said, we can't deal with this dude, and they kicked him out. And evaluations that would be given to him as this investigation went on, made it pretty clear that he had something seriously wrong going on inside his noggin there. Michael was also known to be a frequent shopper at Walmart. He had known Kelly when they showed pictures of her. He could identify her. But he never would confess to anything. Regardless, based on all the... Oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm skipping a fun part. So police obviously did eventually execute a search warrant of his house. That's when they found the comforter that was inside. They also found in his um, gun safe, he had twenty-two caliber bullets for his hunting rifle. But when they looked at the bullets, they had been modified in that all the lead had been taken out of the bullet and replaced with wax. And so when he was shooting his rifle, he wasn't shooting lead bullets. He was shooting wax spitballs, basically. They also found a hand-drawn map. And it took a little while to decipher because Michael was no artist. He was not a cartographer. He didn't study geography in school, apparently. But when they studied it and they were able to sit down and compare it to landmarks and whatnot, they figured out that the map he had drawn was a map, I guess, reminding himself of where he had left Kelly's body. Now, the map also showed where Michael had done the deed, where he had actually killed Kelly. So police went to this spot in the woods and it was close to where his brother Scott had said he had dropped the pair off. And there they found Kelly's pager, her glasses, and several pieces of jewelry she was known to regularly wear. All this is laid out on a map that for some reason Michael felt the need to keep. Now they... End up having to go to trial because Michael won't plead to anything. He won't admit to anything. And he ends up being found guilty and is given death penalty. Now, the jury recommended the death penalty. And the trial judge admitted that she was a little concerned at his mental health. But felt like he knew what he was doing the night that Kelly was killed. And the aggravating circumstances of this crime. You know, the, it was obviously planned and concocted for him to run into the back of Kelly's car when she gets out to inspect the damage. Yeah, that's when he shoots her in the head with his twenty-two rifle with the wax bullets. It doesn't kill her. At least the MEs don't think so. It just knocks her out gives her a nasty concussion. And that's when he pulls her into the van, drives off, gets his brother to finish the drive for him, and ultimately um, rapes and murders her with her own shoelace and bib overall piece. And and just because I feel like this is going to leave kind of a hanging question mark out there, Scott was investigated, too, to see if he had a bigger role in this fiasco than he led on. And he cooperated with police. He gave a DNA sample and all that stuff. And they couldn't find any evidence to tie him to this crime. So they tended to believe his story, that he just kind of acted as this unwilling chauffeur and then immediately ratted on his brother to his wife. So because it was obvious that this had been planned and carried out and there was lots of thought behind it, the judge felt justified in imposing the death penalty here. And prosecutors, police really celebrated this victory because they felt like this dude was on a very bad downward spiral. And I don't disagree with them. Um, apparently, as time went on, his mental health was getting worse and worse. His defense attorneys claimed during some pretrial motions that they really didn't think it was fair to have this guy on trial because he couldn't assist in his defense because he had no recollection of what happened that night, or so he claimed. And again, like I mentioned earlier, there were psychiatrists, both for the government and for the defense, that examined him and said, yeah, this guy's got a lot of problems like, a lot of problems. But none of them would say that he didn't know what he was doing. And again, the evidence just strongly demonstrates he came up with a plan, he followed through on it. His little journey before he washed his vehicle was to move the body, as that's supported by the map. He has a place where he killed her and a place a place where he moved her to the place where she was killed was much easier to find than the place where he had moved the body to. And so there was clearly enough thought process going on that he had planned out this crime, and he knew it was wrong, and he knew he had to hide evidence. And from the moment he was convicted on, just challenge after challenge after challenge, to him being Put on death row because of his very, very low IQ and very uncertain mental condition. In fact, he was convicted in 2000. In 2014, his attorneys were finally successful in convincing a court that he had some mental issues that were of such a degree that it would be unconstitutional to enforce the death penalty against him. He was fine at the time of the murder, but subsequent events had just broken him down too much. Apparently, the court reached a conclusion that he didn't know what day it was. He didn't know where he was. He suffered from massive hallucinations Guards even testified that he would be talking to shadows as if they were real people in his cell. Um, Just everything you can kind of think of to show that this guy's crazy. That's what you got here. And the judge ultimately said, you know, we we can't execute this guy. We're going to keep him on death row and he's going to get regular mental exams and regular mental treatment. And if he recovers enough, then yeah, we can revisit the subject. But as it stands now, it would be cruel and unusual punishment to execute this man when he doesn't really know where he is or what's going on. Now, the prosecutor uh, actually was incensed at this ruling and spoke so poorly about it, he was actually sanctioned. Uh, by the uh, Indiana Supreme Court for, you know, basically throwing trash at the name of a judge. (laughs) Um, You know, lawyers have to respect the judicial system and you can disagree with the judge's ruling, but you can't make it sound like it was personal or highly ill-informed or something like that. And this guy... What happened that got the prosecutor so ticked off was the case was moved from, I believe, Shelby County, where the crime occurred, to another court for this hearing because the judge that was assigned to the case was suffering from some pretty serious medical issues. And the only way the hearing would occur in a reasonable amount of time is to have another judge do it. And basically, the prosecutor goes out and paints this picture of a conspiracy to let this guy off the hook, which I think – Oh, his name was Brad Cooper, too, like the actor, which I liked. Um, it's – I don't know Indiana law from any other state's law. I've never practiced there. I don't know. But I can almost guarantee you that they are not itching to look for a ways to get people off of death row. If this dude was put on death row, a jury recommended it, the trial court went ahead with it. That decision is going to be respected unless some sort of clear error can be found. And this new judge did not find clear error in the original sentencing order. This new judge just said, right now, we can't execute this guy. We just need to keep monitoring him and providing him care so that hopefully one day we can kill him. Which sounds kind of dumb if you're not a lawyer or not really involved with the criminal justice system. Why would you spend all this time and money trying to rehabilitate this guy to the point that you can just kill him? But that's what we do. Interesting little sidebar after the fact Uh, Melissa, his wife. As soon as he was indicted for this, went to the court and said, nope, I'm not doing this. Please let me change my name. She changed her name back to her maiden name, and she had the names changed on all four of her children. So they would not be easily associated with Michael Overstreet. So that's our tale our unscripted tale. I hope it wasn't a total disaster. I hope it was something interesting, and I hope you appreciate it, because if I didn't do it this way, you shan't gonna get an episode. And I know it's hard to go a week without getting your bread fixed. so you're welcome. Now, one thing I've said in the past, both in real life and so I assume here on the show, is that you know, police only catch the stupid criminals. And that can come across as derogatory, and it's really not meant to. Police are in a really difficult position because they just have this crime that pops up out of nowhere, and then they start got, got, start piecing everything together. It's kind of like the fog of war they've got to fight through, right? And so having these stupid criminals make it easy for them. And we like having stupid criminals. Because they're easier to catch. We can get them off the street. We don't have to worry about them. It gives cops and prosecutors and judges and lawyers a job. So it all works out. So when I say that only stupid people are arrested, that's what I'm getting at. And I hope no one takes offense to that. They have so much to puzzle out. And this is an example of them being able to puzzle out a case, thanks in large part to. The perpetrator being an idiot. Alright, um, like I said, this was one heck of a last-minute thrown-together episode, so I don't have a Eli-approved palate cleanser, I'm afraid. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to try, okay? So, here's going to be our palate cleanser for the week. Why did the Atom cross the road? Throwback old school one here. Why did the Atom cross the road? Because it decided it was time to split. That's the best you're going to get from me. Okay, well, um, this was a bumpy ride. For that, I apologize. Next week will be much better. I hope this ride was better than no ride at all. I hope that you found some enjoyment in it. If you want to check out the Forensic Files episode that gave me the inspiration to cover this case, it's called Blanket of Evidence or A Blanket of Evidence. It's from season 11, I think episode 38. It's in the show notes. I've also got a link to some of the court documents and things like that in there. So if you want to check them out, please do. Please also, again, you know, good ratings, nice. If this episode in particular doesn't compel you to give you that good a rating, totally understand. But we appreciate ratings. We appreciate you sharing us with your friends and family. We appreciate all the things y'all do. Um, Again, always honored, humbled shocked even at how much support I get from y'all and you'll you'll never know how much I appreciate it frankly I hope uh, this week will be a little bit more normal we can go back to a more well-researched well-rounded and scripted episode instead of me just pulling out of my memory whatever I can at whatever point in the podcast we are Oh, this was this was like riding a roller coaster for me. All right. Um trying to think what else. I don't know that I have anything else because I don't have a script to check against. But y'all just keep on rocking. Keep living the good life. Keep keep doing what you're doing. The only way to become awesome is to just keep being you. And y'all are good at that. So. I'm going to leave it in y'all's hands. I'm going to shut up. We're going to consider this one done. And maybe we'll never speak of it again. You know, maybe this is one of those lost episodes that goes into the vault. And we don't have to worry about it becoming, you know, finding its way onto a Greatest Sits album anytime soon. All right. Love y'all. Take care. Until next week, Brad out. You survived another episode of and Missing Hidden. The podcast about Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.